0: Oh, she bangs. I'm wasted by the way she moves. No one ever looks so fine. She reminds me that a woman's got one thing on her mind. Welcome back to She Bangs, She Bangs Marriage, Adultery, Texas, and Jesus, a totally spiritual, equally foul mouthed podcast about marriage, mistresses, and possibilities. I'm your host, Jennifer Bangs. I don't want to do this next episode. (laughs) I want to stop right here. It's safe here. I'm still a good egg for the most part, so I don't want to continue. Because from this point on, parts of my story still affect me today. Memories sneak up on me like a pothole. I don't know they're there until the last second and I try to maneuver my way around them and sometimes I can and I whisk by and it's all good. And other times the entire car galumps and scrapes through and I'm jarred and angry and wondering if there's any more damage that's been done. But it'd be pretty lame to stop right here, self-preserving and all that, so here we go. But first, a recap. For six years, I'd been fighting for my marriage alone. That first year James left me was the hardest year of my life. And my two comforts during that time were A, my lifelong faith in a God who loved me and wanted healing for all of us, and B, my fledgling and unfortunately burgeoning social group of women who all wanted to save our flatlining marriages. The group was called IGTS, I-G-T-S. An acronym for I'm going through shit, because we were. We drank wine and fed each other stories of reconciled marriages. And after one year, my husband James came home. His first year back was remarkable. It was probably the greatest year we ever had as a couple. Because part of recovering from infidelity is doing it together. The perpetrator becomes healer, and it's an indispensable process. And that process emboldened us to grow our family by adding another child to it. This time, not through my womb, but an orphanage overseas. As a family of now four, we found ourselves back in Texas in my hometown with an adopted child. And when we moved to Texas with a new baby, we were not strong enough for her. Our marriage was not strong enough for an adopted child. That wonderful year or so of healing ended we started to fall apart. I found comfort in sexting with a guy named Bruce, and when my husband found out, he said he was filing. I cried out to God and he told me something would happen at the start of the new year. And at the end of December, as January was making its way around the corner, James relented and said he didn't want to end our marriage. I don't think he was proclaiming any form of forgiveness, but rather exuding hope, something he'd never displayed before. And desire, also something he'd never displayed before, that maybe we can make this dumpster fire of a marriage work. So, grab a glass of champagne and welcome to IGTS, Episode 8 Robert. Oh, there were times that I thought I wouldn't let. Now I think I'm able to carry on It's been a long, a long time coming But I know a change is gonna come Oh yes it will I felt a new surge of life. James, for the first time in our marriage, seemed dedicated to making it work. Not just me, but James. James was in this with me. I felt an incredible rush of promise for our future. It was such a sharp contrast to the mountain of bullshit I'd faced on a daily basis knowing I was the only one at the helm trying to keep our ship of a marriage from sinking. And yes, I just mixed two metaphors in a really ineloquent way, whatever. It had been shit and sinking ships for years, and I'd been the only one doing something about it. Yes, I did have that sexting affair, and yes, it was wrong. But it culminated into nothing. I had promised my friend that I'd never sext that guy again, and I never did. There were no residual feelings for him, and as quickly as the sexting began, it ended. James had either forgiven me or let it go. I had apologized profusely and had paid my penance by attending those futile counseling sessions and eating dirt for months. James never brought it up again. And now, at the top of the new year, there was a commitment from both of us to make our marriage not only survive, but happy. Finally! God, I was thrilled! James was a computer guy. In his days after film school trying to make it in producing in Hollywood, he realized the futility of starting at the bottom. He decided to use his skills as a computer programmer slash entrepreneur and make a lot of money, then go back into film. Because James and I had lived in LA, we had a lot of film connections. So James took some of the money he'd made and invested it into a movie his best friend was making. The film was premiering at Sundance Film Festival this particular January. So James and I flew to Utah to see the film, support our friend, and see what our investment money had produced. It was the first vacation we'd taken without a kid in four years. The film was an absolute hit and went on to make a decent splash in Hollywood, making us a nice return on investment. As we were celebrating the success of the film late one night in our hotel room, James and I got completely wasted, or at least I did. As drunk as I was, though, I still remember clear as day James's question to me that night. Jennifer, if there was no Jesus, what would you do with your life? I knew what he meant, or at least I took what he meant was this. Jennifer, if there were no consequences to your actions, if there was no guilt on your part, if you could do anything you wanted without a thought of selfishness or responsibility, what would you do? And I answered, take our son Andrew and move to New York City. I was surprised how easily the answer came. I was caught off guard by the question, and the alcohol ironically aided in a sober answer. If I hadn't been as drunk as I was, I wouldn't have been as forthcoming, and if I'd had a moment to think about it, I would have answered differently. But my response rolled out of my mouth like marbles down a hill. I'd take Andrew and move to New York City. I don't remember how James responded, and as time wore on, I figured he'd forgotten the conversation altogether. I mean, we were both so drunk, the fact that one of us remembered it was a miracle in itself. January passed, and my husband asked me what I wanted for my birthday in February. I told him, a stripper pole. We put it up in our study. The study was perfect because it already looked like a seedy topless bar with its 1970s dark wood paneling covering two walls and the entire ceiling. The third wall was a built-in wet bar, and the fourth wall was one giant mirror. A perfect room for a pole. James was out of town on a business trip the actual day of my birthday, so he paid for two of my closest friends and I to go to dinner, then come home and test out the pole. Michelle, the one who'd helped me take those initial photos for Bruce, she nor I had any idea what to do on a stripper pole, but my other friend Cindy? Well, Cindy was older with bleach blonde hair, Botox, and tits for days. She was my next-door neighbor and the kind of person who seemed to know her way around these things. The next day, James came back from his business trip. He'd already given me my present, but wanted to give me my birthday card in person. It was a typical drugstore type of card, something that said, For your birthday, I wish you a hundred birthday wishes with a picture of a candle. But where the pre-printed hallmark ended, James began. James had written into the card, 100 wishes of mine. The first, that he'd be the most fantastic husband I could ever have. The second, that our son would never stop calling his bouncy toy a boingy boingy the third, that our Russian daughter would avoid being recruited by the KGB, the fourth, that I would win an Oscar, the fifth, that I would know God's love in deeper ways every day, the sixth, that I could be actual friends with Cookie Monster, the seventh, that I could kidnap our friend Siberian husky Vandy and get away with it, the eighth, the ninth, the tenth, and on and on he wrote. Each one a specific wish he'd heard me say, either in passing or in jest or in a late-night contemplative confession. Wish after wish until he got to one hundred. One hundred wishes. All of mine. I didn't think he'd been listening. I didn't think he cared. But he had. He did. This man knew me. He knew me. And he loved me. I read his words over and over again. I slid to the floor in our kitchen and continued reading, my hand frozen over my gaping mouth. James, this is the most incredible thing I've ever read, I sputtered through tears. One hundred wishes, one hundred wishes of mine for me. He'd been listening all these years. He'd been listening I told James I wanted to paint an entire wall with his wishes for me. I felt so seen, so heard, so validated for just being human, for just being me. Michelle came over the next day. Wow, Jen, you said James was working on the marriage, but I didn't believe it. I didn't believe him that he could do it. I never thought he'd picked up on a thing you cared about, but now? I mean, yeah, you guys really are going to make it. And then she did a loop around the stripper pole. I mean, this has been a pretty awesome birthday for you, she laughed. We were going to make it. We were actually going to make it. After six years of struggling to love and forgive and not let go, for me, for James, for Andrew, for Bebe, the toil had paid off. We were going to be one happy family. It was happening. God had told me something was going to happen at the beginning of the year. This was it. The theater where I had done Oliver and Rent posted auditions for Camelot. I had worked at this theater many times over the years. In fact, one of the first shows I ever did there was Fiddler on the Roof. When I did it then, we're in flashback mode here, when I did Fiddler then, a decade before, I was fresh out of college playing opposite of a New York Broadway actor. At the time, he was newly married with a baby on the way, and at one point in rehearsal, the director added a kiss into our scene, and I was mortified, kissing a married man. I was so nervous his wife was gonna hate me for kissing her husband, but instead, she came to the show and said she liked me. After the show had closed, I received a Christmas card that year from this guy and his wife and their new baby girl. I was so honored that this fancy Broadway actor remembered me and included me in their list of people to send Christmas cards to that year. Okay, flashback over. Now we're back in February at the auditions for Camelot. This is now 11 years later, right now, for present tense. At this same theater, the company manager says... We're asking all the females if they're okay with tasteful nudity in this production. We're going to have someone topless but tastefully nude. She kept using the word tastefully. With like a long wig and lots of smoke and you won't even be able to tell it's you. But we're asking all the females if they're okay with this. And my first thought is, hell no. But knowing I had just mooned the audience in Rent, I certainly couldn't play the moral card, so I said yes, knowing the second I did, they were gonna cast me as the fucking naked girl. And that's exactly what they did. Rehearsal started one week after my birthday. The day before our very first rehearsal, I get a call from the company manager that there's been a change, and instead of standing ghost-like, tastefully topless, I'm now going to be on a bed, rising center stage, naked, straddling King Arthur. Oh, and I believe you know him, she says. You all played opposite of each other in Fiddler on the Roof, and I'm like, the married guy? So I tell my husband, and he says it's fine as long as I keep him apprised of the situation. And then I freak out to a couple of girlfriends, and they're like, You are being so stupid. He's been on Broadway like a gazillion times. His wife has seen him make out with tons of women. She doesn't care. Besides, maybe they're not even married anymore. And so I go to my computer, and according to Google Images, this guy, Robert, looks like he's still married. I send him an email reminding him who I am because I don't want him to get there and me be like, hey, Robert, and him not have a clue who I am and feel really awkward and weird, especially now that we're making out on stage. So I shoot him an email and say, hey, Robert, remember me? I remember you and your wife. You and your wife were so nice to me when we did Fiddler years ago. You even sent me a Christmas card. I really look forward to seeing you and your wife. Cheers, or something like that. And later that night, I get an email back from Robert that says, Jennifer exclamation point. Yes, I remember you, exclamation point. Fondly period. And I sat there staring at that fondly for a very long time, not knowing exactly what to make of it. So the next day, first day of rehearsal, Robert and I get reacquainted, and at lunch I joke, so how about this makeout scene a riot, huh? And he quips, Yeah, my wife's not too happy about it. <laughs> The next day I bring in all these old pictures when we did Fiddler 11 years before and Robert's flipping through the photos and smiling and laughing and then he flips to the old Christmas card photo I'd thrown in there of him and his wife and baby girl from years ago and I see a look flash across his face. And if you blinked, you would have missed it by a mile. But I knew that look. And that look said, he's not happy in his marriage. And I'm like, no, 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 I do not want to know this. I do not want to know this because we are about to make out naked on stage and my marriage is just starting to heal and I do not want to know this. But you can't unknow this stuff. After a few days, it was time to rehearse our gratuitous and completely unnecessary makeout scene. The director says like, go. And I'm like, "Uh." I don't know what that means because there's no script for this and how am I supposed to choreograph a nude makeout scene fully clothed on a fluorescent lit hardwood rehearsal floor and so I start giggling because I don't know what the fuck is going on and I haven't kissed another man in 10 years and I'm terrified and Robert smiles get it together Morgaz and then we kiss and I feel like I have been kissing this man my whole life but I try to shake it off and not care and not notice that it felt like the most natural thing in the world like I'd felt when I held my daughter for the first time that she was mine, even though she didn't come from me. And that's how it felt kissing Robert, that this man had tasted my lips countless times before. But I'd snap myself back to reality. Robert was someone I knew from years before, and we'd connected, but nothing was going to happen because it was only a three-week contract here. Week and a half of rehearsal, week and a half of shows, and then Robert would fly back to New York, and I'd probably never see him again. And things had been going better with James that I knew my little fluttering heart was just a crush, getting to kiss an exceptionally sexy man whom had been fond of me a decade before. (laughs) Nothing was gonna happen. Ridiculous. Rehearsals continued. The director realized they didn't have enough music for the bed to rise center stage during the overture, so he added four measures of choral oohs and aahs to Lerner and Lowe's score of Camelot so Robert and I could get our groove on. Also ridiculous. I didn't go out much during rehearsals because my main responsibilities were still mother and wife, but when I did go out for the occasional drink after rehearsal, James would get angry. I'd seen this jealousy kick in during rent, and though I'd done other shows since then, I hadn't seen it since then. James started getting testy. I'd wave it away and tell him I'd be back in the house in only a couple weeks and to calm down. No surprise there, that didn't work. But there wasn't much he could do but complain about it, as he'd had free reign to go on multiple business trips over the years, and he could afford me a night or two out with new friends and a new show. James didn't like it, but we were just talking a couple more weeks. This particular cast was so much fun, and getting to know Robert more and more was really nice. When I'd met him over a decade before, he was married with a kid on the way, and I was just out of college. Our lives were so different, but now? Now we were both married, with children, and he didn't seem like such a distant reach for connection. Our lives had equaled out. I began to notice where he was in the room every second. It was terribly inconvenient to be crushing this hard on a married man, but I knew nothing was gonna happen. We'd just ride around in my little Volkswagen Beetle with the adorning flower magnets going to lunch, and it was fine. It was fine. It was just nice to feel like an adult, getting reacquainted with an old friend, and not feeling like just a mom. My mom's best friend told me I always seemed happier when I was doing theater, that I seemed more my real self. I was. But James didn't like it. James seemed happiest when I was home catering to him and his needs. This unrest finally capsized two nights before opening at 2.30 in the morning. James flips on the light switch and tells me he's leaving me. What? Why? And he says something about me getting my shit together. And if I get my shit together, then maybe we can work it out. But he and the kids are going to my parents' house until I get my shit together. He had no further information on what exactly getting my shit together looked like. But in that moment, after years and years of his threats to leave me, and that entire awful, painful year when he did leave me, and the adultery and the abuse and the selfishness and the callousness, my heart broke. I literally felt my heart break in half. In that moment, it died for my husband. It stopped beating for him. I saw a figurative light switch emerge, and I flipped it, and it felt good. The light said, no longer care. If your husband doesn't want you after so many years of you trying, show him what a single Jennifer Bangs looks like. And so I took my smashed heart and narrowed my eyes on Robert. He confessed to me earlier that week that there had been infidelity in his marriage before, and they both had just kind of looked the other way, and so I was like, I'm not doing anything to them that hasn't already been done. The next day, it was opening night. James said he was taking the kids to my parents, and I'd have the house to myself indefinitely. It was too much to process, so I put it out of my mind and drove to the theater. As much as I didn't love how stupid my part in the production was, the booby-flashing chorus girl, I was glad to have somewhere to go to keep my mind off of things. I would just keep my head down, do my part, and try not to think about it. I'd invited no one to the show. I mean, why would I? Come see Camelot, where I have no lines, no songs, but flash my tatas? So I wouldn't have to worry about talking to anyone after the show. I could just get on stage, bare my breasts, and then get hammered at the after-show party trying to forget what all was happening. As I'm pulling up to the theater, I get a call from my mom. Happy opening night tonight, honey. I know you said not to come see the show because you said your part is so small, but I just wanted to let you know that your dad and I got tickets and we're bringing our entire Sunday school class tonight. Guys, I'm not kidding. I try to think fast and text my mom that there's been a change and I no longer am playing Morgaz, the one making it with Arthur at the top of the show, but rather I'm playing the dancing unicorn. Side note, guys, this was and is a professional theater in Texas that hires Broadway actors and directors, but my god, this particular production was just outrageous with boobs flying everywhere and dancing unicorns on stage. The dancing unicorn and I kind of looked alike, so I hoped I could confuse my mom and dad and their friends enough that they would think that they were looking at Alyssa's tits and not mine. I did have a long black wig, and it was dark, and good lord, I hoped I could fool them. We opened the show, and I said hi to my parents afterwards. I could never tell if they knew. To this day, I've never asked if they knew or their friends knew. I think we all just pretend we don't. So... After that absurd drama subsided, the entire cast and crew headed to the theater bar for well-deserved libations. As the evening wore on and souls started scattering, a few of us go back to Robert's hotel room. It was a two-story hotel room with one bedroom on the bottom floor and one upstairs. I decided since my husband had definitely left me and taken the kids, I wasn't going home. Eventually, everyone left Robert's room except for me. I asked him if I could spend the night, as I didn't want to go home, and so he leads me up the stairs to the second floor where the other bedroom is, and we get to the top of the stairs, and he stops and looks at me and leans over and kisses my forehead and then goes back downstairs. (laughs) Oh my god, damn it, I thought. The one time I try to do something bad, I can't even do it. What woman gets turned down when she's alone in a hotel room with a guy she's already been naked with? Oh well, so I fall asleep until the next morning when Robert comes in and he's like jostling me awake. Hey, hey, I just got a funny email. Have you checked your email? My husband, James, had found my theater contact sheet and emailed the entire cast and crew and board and president of the theater asking them if anyone has seen his wife as he and the kids are worried sick. And so I called James, and I'm like, what the fuck, James? And he's like, where are you? And I'm like, I don't have to tell you because you left me, remember? And he's like, well, the kids and I never left, and I don't want to leave you anymore. And I'm like, it doesn't work like that. At this point, Robert is now laying on my bed, and I'm thinking, oh, maybe this thing isn't over yet. And so he leans over and kisses me, and oh my God, I was undone. It was so fun. It was so nice to be wanted and to want someone in return. We had a matinee that day, so we drove to the theater, and as I walk in the stage door, an actor says to me, what's with their weird Facebook post, Jen? My husband had hacked into my account as me and posted on Facebook as me, hey, everybody, want everyone to know what an awesome mom I am doing a show where I'm naked with a married guy grabbing my ass. Aren't I a good mom? And I furiously dial my husband and I'm like, what the fuck, James, take that down. And later that day I find out he's also hacked into my email account and emailed every single female on the contact list, including famous Hollywood clients of mine from my photo archiving company, begging all of them to ask me to come home and be a good wife and mother to our children. That night was the second night of our show and my husband came up to the theater and picked a fight with Robert and the Broadway director and the producer. The next day was Monday. We had no shows, and my husband goes to work. And I sit at home thinking, uh, did I just have an affair? Did I I just sleep with a married man? What the fuck just happened? I mean, I didn't actually have sex with Robert, but it was damn near close. Tuesday night was our next show, and I went up to the theater not really knowing what to say to Robert. I just did my stupid naked shit and then waited for the curtain to come down. I asked him if he wanted to go get a drink. We went to a local restaurant, just the two of us, and as we sat down, he apologized for making out with me. Don't say that, I groaned. Oh God, please don't say that. I finally did something bad. Don't apologize to me. Don't make this into something so minor that it isn't allowed to hold the significance of it in my life. He smiled. Okay, but I do feel bad. I feel like I took advantage of you. Please, I retorted. You didn't take advantage of me. I did what I wanted. And then Robert says, you know, You've changed. You're not the sweet Christian girl I knew from years ago. You're different. Your light has dimmed. God, this was the worst post-sexual conversation ever. First an apology, then an insult? Well, yeah, I snapped back. I've been through a hell of a marriage and been cheated on and verbally abused and lightly physically abused, and I'm still holding on with two kids, one of which has so many issues because she's from a communist orphanage. So yeah, my fucking light has dimmed, asshole. And your light, by the way, isn't looking too bright either. We walk back to my car and sit there. Then Robert kisses me. Good. I think this is more like it. He then pulls away and says, How's your walk with Jesus, Jen? Oh my God! Are you kidding me with this? Stop trying to make me feel bad for what I'm doing! I'm not apologizing for what happened three nights ago! I'm glad I did it! I'd do it again! And then Robert's face changes. Really? Yes! I say emphatically. Then let me take you to bed. And so we drive to Robert's hotel room. A few hours later, I come home to an angry James. I ignore him. The affair lasted a week. Because James never left the house like he'd threatened, I couldn't spend any nights with Robert. But I'd sneak away to his place in between shows or during the day when the kids were with the nanny. I knew it was reckless. I didn't care. At this point, all my thugs were gone. I downloaded this awesome game on Android called Bubble Fox, and I'd lay on the bed at home while James would lambast me and go on and on about me and my suckiness and my responsibilities and blah, 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 I did not hear him. I just played my dumb Bubble Fox game and did not care. James could never prove I cheated on him, but he had his very strong suspicions. The last night of the show after I got home and the kids had been put to bed, James began singing at the top of his lungs over and over again, you stupid fucking cunt, you stupid fucking cunt, you stupid fucking cunt, you stupid fucking cunt, you stupid fucking cunt. This went on for 45 minutes. I timed it. The show was over. Robert went back to New York and I looked around at ground zero. I found out then that that opening weekend, James had put a GPS tracker on my phone, put a GPS tracker on my car, even hired a private investigator. After that first night, one night, I'd finally called my husband's bluff and he lost his mind. And in that one week, James had managed to destroy the little world of happiness I'd created outside our home. That theater I had worked for for decades has never hired me again. I told James I would not file for divorce, but if he wanted to save our marriage, it was all in him now because I did not have it in me anymore. And for six weeks, he tried, and my heart started to soften. And one night, as we lay in bed, he says to me, I'm tired. I'm tired of giving and giving and getting nothing in return. It had been six weeks, and he was tired. My already broken heart managed to break a little more. Neither of us were fighting for our marriage at this point. It was a first in our history. No one was at the wheel. Then Robert, strangely, miraculously, was asked to come back to Texas two weeks later for a special weekend performance. I thought I'd never see him again, and now he's back at the theater only weeks later. I snuck away for a few hours to see him. I was infatuated, but also a little out of my gourd. Life was swirling around me, and I had no idea really what was going on. I was just kind of floating and taking things as they came. There is some freedom in not giving a fuck, I guess. Then, two months later, Robert came back for the entire summer. All three contracts, Camelot, The Weekend Engagement, and this new show, were all in my hometown, a place Robert hadn't been since I'd met him 11 years prior and now he was spending half the year here. This new show Robert had been a part of for years in New York and the producers had finally decided where to have its world premiere. Here, in Texas, right down the street from me, four months after Robert and I re-met one another. It seemed fate was having its way with us. And it's here that my Christian theology goes seriously off the rails because it was becoming clearer and clearer that Robert and my relationship had no chance at being denied. There was a force that seemed to be pushing us towards one another, and that force didn't seem nefarious, but rather benevolent. And again, I know some of your Christian ears are bleeding hearing me say that, but just stick with me because I'm right there with you. So now that Robert was back, and now that James had declared he was tired, I thought, What the hell? Let's do this. I told Robert when he got to town I wanted to see him. Five minutes before I arrived at his hotel, he called me. Don't come. Don't come, Jenny. I know we're both miserable in our marriages, but I can't do this. I've been here before. I know how these things go, and they don't end pretty. I'm sorry. And he hung up. I pulled off to the side of the road and sat there for a second. I was only minutes from his door. What's the worst that could happen, I thought? We fall in love and then he goes back to New York? I can handle that. We're both so unhappy in our marriages. Let's just have a fling and then go back to our normal lives in three months. I continued to his hotel. When I knocked on the door, he opened it and sighed. He knew he didn't have the power to say no, me standing in his door. So I crossed the threshold and entered in. The next three months were magical. It was all the things I'd read about when studying my husband's affair. This psychological unnetting called limerence. When you're just infatuated with your lover and because it's a secret, it fuels the fire and you're living in fantasy land and la, 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 la. I knew it and I didn't care. Knowing it was just for a summer allowed me to put this bubble around us, like a snow globe. This picturesque little world that isn't real, but for a moment I could pretend it was mine and shake it and the snowflakes would fall all around us and it was dreamlike and beautiful and perfect. Just for a moment. And as the weeks rolled on, Robert and I fell in love. But who cares? He lived in another state and was moving back home soon. I was a stay-at-home mom with two kids in a five-bedroom house in suburbia, Texas. Even if we wanted to be together, it was an impossibility. So any kind of long-term scenario didn't enter either one of our minds. Robert would tell me how incredibly lonely he and his wife were in their marriage. I asked him once if he wasn't gonna go all in and try to make it work. Why not just end it? The kids, he said. I would rather cut off my balls and put them in a mason jar than divorce my wife and leave my kids. Okay, that pretty much settled it. James decided we needed a change. Maybe it was his last ditch effort to save our marriage, I don't know. But one summer day, he says, let's move to New York City. I was dumbfounded. New York City? I thought you wanted to go back to LA, James. Yeah, but isn't that what you said at Sundance, Jen? that you wanted to move back to New York City? He'd remembered. He'd remembered that drunken confession. I tried to control my excitement. I knew if I showed an inkling of joy, James would beat it down. So I put on a poker face, an expression of neutrality. Yeah, I guess we could look into that. I immediately called my Texas divorce attorney. When you live with a man who's always threatening to leave you, you better always have an attorney on call. I drove over to Jack's office and laid out what James had told me. What am I missing here, Jack? How would it benefit James to have us move to New York and then him decide to divorce me later? I knew better than to think James was wanting to move to New York for me, but the attorney couldn't think of any reason James would do that. It'd be better for him to file now than pay for a move to another state and establish residency there, he said. I left Jack's office scratching my head. Could this be real? Could James actually be doing something for me out of the kindness of his heart? I started making logistical plans for a move to New York. James said it would be a crazy adventure and maybe good for us to have two homes. He suggested Andrew and I go ahead, enroll him in school, and find a place for all of us to live and eventually James and Bibi would join us. James's company was expanding into Manhattan, but for the time being, he needed to stay in Texas. And I had just gotten Bebe into a special school, so she needed to stay in Texas. But Andrew and I could go ahead, he said, and we could fly back and forth on the literal one million airline miles we had. At first, I told Robert nothing of these plans. It didn't matter if I was moving to a city, because since it was just a summer fling, I could shut my eyes and tell myself I wasn't doing anything pivotal to his life or mine. Fantasy land for a few months, then go back to our real lives. So at first, I didn't tell Robert. It didn't matter if I was moving. I wasn't interested in ripping him away from his family. I wasn't going to, like, whip out the formaldehyde for that mason jar. Then something happened. Robert changed his mind. I want to be with you, he said. Don't leave your wife for me, I said. Leave because you both don't want to fight for your marriage, but don't do it to be with me. At the end of the day, I wanted Robert's marriage to work out. I wanted the best for him and his kids. I know that sounds preposterous, sleeping with a married man yet claiming to root for his marriage, but that's what it was. It is possible to live with those seeming contradictions, at least for a time. But our summer together changed how both of us saw our futures. There was now an alternative story unfolding to what seemed a dismal and destined path. I want to be with you, Robert said. I want this to be the first chapter of us, not the last." And so, I kissed him goodbye as he got on a plane back to New York City, not knowing if he meant it. Not knowing if he'd meet me in the Big Apple once I got there in two weeks. Not knowing if this new adventure would prove just the thing James and I needed to bring us together, or the Excalibur to cut us to pieces. To this day, I believe in my heart and soul that the moment James suggested we move to New York was a divine moment. When the heavens opened for a brief moment in time and James did something nice for me, something he knew I wanted, not him. And looking back, when I think to this moment, I really do believe it was God. I believe God looked down on his baby girl and said, I know you wanted your marriage restored. I know you wanted your family reconciled. I know you fought and fought for plan A, little girl, but you're just not gonna get it. So I'm gonna give you the next best thing you wanted. You're going to get to be in New York City with your little boy. In New York, concrete job. Episode, episode 9. Start spreading the news. I'm leaving today. This is She Bangs She Bangs. Marriage, Adultery, Texas, and Jesus. Find me on Twitter at Jennifer Bangs or Shebangs Shebangs.com. Cheers. Until next time. She bangs, she bangs. I'm wasting by the way she moves.